the top players and legends to the very best analysts around the world from wherever the beautiful game is played. This is BTP. Now, we're talking football. Yes, hello folks, welcome to Beyond the Pins, a very special episode. And I must say, I'm delighted to be joined here the gentleman called Kyle Martino, who will make no introduction to the United States. I want to do this quick intro. As you go through life, you meet different people, you learn from, you take something from. Uh, this is an individual that's made me a better person, an individual who taught me professionalism, an individual who unfortunately was the recipient, and I've talked about this many, many times to him, and I'm sure he's tired of hearing about it, but it is important, who... When I was in the depths of my own mental health struggles, I was quite nasty too, uh, which was a reflection of my own issues rather than Kyle's who dealt with it with a consummate professionalism and told me how to deal with that type of thing in a, in, a, in a much more productive, happy way. And I'm extremely grateful for that life lesson that he taught me. And I have taken it ever since. And he is a true gentleman. Um, Kyle, over the noise of the ambulance or the... The background yeah, noise. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. It's like someone, someone was coming to, to take me away for, for, uh, for that introduction. But in all uh, seriousness, thanks, man. thank too you kind, for that. Too kind to give me those kind words, man. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be back on and, uh, and, a, and a joy to have uh, connected years ago and created a friendship, my man. Yes, it has. And for me, like I said, I've learned a lot from you and I, I am extremely grateful. Kyle, you are obviously a football player. You are also one of the voices of the Premier League out here. Uh, NBC have done such a magnificent job with the Premier League out here. And my wife also has a crush on you. You've got the best hair on TV. <laughs> How you doing, mate, during this lockdown? Uh, it's tough, man. i got to be honest. Listen, yeah. I think everyone is... Um, it's, it, it's obviously affecting everyone differently. For some people, this is a really scary time. Um, whether it be the the, the fatal nature of uh, of the virus in terms of how it affects certain people, and then those that love these people, mm-hmm. and then the rest of us that are trying to do um, good for society and 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 stay home and be safe. And the tough part is, um, you know, it's it's for for a lot of people hard to recalibrate and readjust yeah. to what's being asked of everyone right now and uh that's not to say we shouldn't be doing it of course we know we should and we know the impact of what we're doing but it doesn't make it any easier for some people you know like myself that struggle with uh, several things that make it hard to you know lock myself up in a house yeah. and uh, and try to get about life you know and we will call. We will cover that. Obviously, we'll talk about your mental health, and I'm extremely grateful for you having the courage to come on and talk about that. It's such an important topic, especially at the moment. And as you know, um, I've battled my own issues, so I'm incredibly grateful for people with huge platforms like yourself to to normalize this conversation. Uh, before we get into that, um, let's talk about the football. Uh, some kernels of encouragement with the Bundesliga back. Let me ask you, yeah. has there been any communication from NBC about when they would expect Premier League return? I know we're talking about maybe June 12th or somewhere around there. Uh, is there, is there any, anything you can share, any light you can share on me for it? Um, yes, I mean, every week we get a new update, right? You know, the, I think the unfortunate part, and, you know, several weeks back we had heard, um, you know, rumblings of that that date, you know, trying to get the mm-hmm. Premier League back up and running by the middle of June. Um you know, that desire from the Premier League at that point was kind of moot based on not knowing if the government was going to, uh, you know, cooperate and, and allow that to happen. So, you know, I, I think each week the news seems a little more promising. And I think the yeah. Bundesliga and 
um, being up and running. And I think a lot of other leagues took a step back and watched, you know, the reaction to that and and how successful it was to get their league back up and running. So I'm I'm optimistic it happens soon. I'm hopeful it happens soon because, you know, we're all football fans and we love watching the game. Uh, you know, I, uh, I I as a football fan first want to be watching football, but also miss. Miss my coworkers Rebecca and the Robbies and, yeah. and Arlo and Lee and Graham so much. I can't wait to get back working with them. Yeah, and I know that feeling is mutual. Obviously, uh, I know Robbie and the two Robbies quite well, especially Robbie Earl. And uh, I, I hear how, how highly he speaks of all of you. So I know that feeling is mutual. And I think everyone just wants to get back. Before we get into some of the heavy stuff, tell me about your over under initiative. Yeah. So. Um, you know, when I ran for U.S. soccer president, and, and you and I talked uh, a few times when I was on mm-hmm. the campaign trail, you know, I think all of us kind of look at the game and say, it's the game first, and, and then um, maybe your nation next, and maybe a club team next, you know, but it all starts with, how, how, do, we, how do we bring the incredible gift this sport is to as many poss- people as possible? And so, out of the election, um, the issue of consequence that, that worried me the most was access to the game. I mean, here is, here is the most affordable blue-collar social empowerment sport on the planet, and it prices out a huge demographic yeah. in, in our country. Like, how is that possible? So I came up with this idea to, to try and attack the access problem with an infrastructure solution of bringing the game to these communities the way I played it growing up, playing on hardscape. And so I looked around and saw we had an enormous inventory of handball courts, basketball courts, and all these spaces uh, right next to dense populations of kids that aren't enjoying the incredible health and wellness benefit of of our sports. So I thought, well, listen, if I do nothing else, I'm going to go around and, and bring the game as a sample, not at, not as an exclusive offering, but as a sample to a lot of these communities by taking their basketball court and not creating this idea, but stealing from South America and Europe and all these other Mm -hmm. countries that put soccer goals under the hoops and find out a way that I can create a nonprofit and over under initiative is the 501 C three that we have that goes around and lobbies, uh, parks and rec officials and mayors and council members to get cities to sign up to convert these spaces. And so we've got 10 cities signed up already. And, uh, I, I'm just. I feel fortunate to be able to use my pulpit to try to push something like that. Absolutely brilliant work, vital, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, it is a social empowerment game, and it does belong to a lot of people. I mean, I grew up with very little, and football in the midst of violence that I grew up in was a lifeline for me. It gave me a dream. I couldn't afford to play any many other sports, just a ball and, and a dream, as so many of us had. So it's important that these kids are not priced out of this. These kids have access to this and equality with kids that have means because uh, football has to belong to everybody, not just those with means. So yeah. it's great that you do that. You did run for the presidency. Well Why did you run for the presidency? Um, I mean, I think the, the easy answer is um, I, I was fed up. You know, I, I was heartbroken as a fan. You know, um, I, I feel so fortunate, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly fortunate to have played the game. Uh, for living, even more fortunate to have represented my country. So, um, you know, there's always going to be a very special affinity for uh, all of our players that wear the badge on the men's and women's side. And, you know, I was I was really upset with how our women had been treated over the years um, and tried to do what I could from, from my platform to speak about it. But then when the men failed to qualify for the World Cup, and as a fan, I was devastated. I would watch the greatest sporting tournament 
on the planet without my team in it. Mm-hmm. And then watched the lack of accountability afterwards. Yeah. Um, I, I was just fed up, you know, Phil, I just, I just had to do something. And, you know, I, I would say I felt a little bit of guilt that the game had given me so much. And, you know, from my, from my platform, I could speak about it, but wasn't really doing much about it and wanted to roll my sleeves up and, and, and get down and, and do something. And so, um, you know, running for president is a story that I've told you some of them over many years. Uh, I'll tell some of the stories of the Chicago style politics that went on, but, um, you know, as hard as it was and as devastating as it was not to get actual change, um, it, it was a life-changing experience that I wouldn't have the foundation I started, um, Street FC, my other company I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have gone after a lot of these things because I was just too comfortable and too cozy in my position and, and didn't really realize the, the seismic issues going on with the game in this country. I have to make you aware of this. I know you deleted your Twitter, and we'll talk about that, and you probably are aware of it. Are you aware of Eric Winalda's comments the last two days about your presidency run? <laughs> no, I but I can, I, I can only imagine. Yeah, yeah. I'll read it to you. Said, the only person in the end that split the vote was Kelly Martino, posing as an agent of change, but really becoming the most detrimental to the cause. His actions were unforgivable. Do you have a response to that, Kel? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to oh, you know, like I, I, I laugh, but honestly, I, I do. Um, I, Eric was a phenomenal player, and I and I do believe Eric is, is a good guy. Um, his behavior during the campaign actually worried me. I, I really, you know, um, I laugh, but I, I'm not entirely, you know, I, I'm not sure that um, he is this person, this this awful person that's leading a mob of people that are believing just just baseless and 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 honestly like naive and obtuse comments that um if you really deconstruct them it's a projection from eric that really is a lot of the things that he says and so it's a shame because i really do think he could do a lot of great for the game in this country and anecdotally i'll give you a little little thing i could give you a hundred um but but um there was a huge moment during the election where I brought um, all of the all of the um, non-establishment people into a room. So essentially, everyone but Carlos Cordero and, and Kathy Carter, and um, we we all got into a room. And I finally, one by one, negotiated each of these people to come and sit and try and come up with a, a coalition, come up with a group, and unite a, for actual change. And to say we were going to stand together. And whoever, um, whoever after the first two rounds was looking the best out of all of us to go and win this thing, we would all drop out and get behind this person. And, um, you know, Eric, Eric was there. Eric was sitting. Eric was all for it. Um, and uh, other people, you know, just couldn't get over the line and agree to it. So that whole thing fell apart. What, what's remarkable is Eric, and I can't even remember his, his campaign manager's name, I mean, the, the, I mean, the guy, the guy he, he and Eric are just a tag team of mm-hmm. just, you know, uh, gaslighting everyone. But um, they, they, they acted in, in such an unethical way during this whole thing. And, you know, the slanderous things they were doing against the other side and having trucks driven by with, you know, awful suggestions of running mates and, this whole time, you know, Eric was propped up and supported and paid by by a few people that had agendas. And Eric was let go from Fox and basically was was just 
flying by the seat of his pants. And a lot of people were buying it, which was pretty amazing. But it's such a shame because they, they actually were the ones that were creating such a rabid following that wouldn't really listen to anyone or see that the way we were going to win is by brokering things together and coming up with, uh, with logical solutions and actual game plans rather than pitchforks and flamethrowers and, and torches. So it's a real shame because, um, you know, Eric and, and whatever that guy's name are just, you know, and, and their eight crazy followers are going to continue to say these things. Um, and, you know, it's a shame because I, I, I really think if he would act in a more res- um, responsible and respectful way, you know, he could help get a lot of things done. But they really are the ones that make it impossible to be heard because we're kind of guilty by association when anyone sees an ex-player like Eric doing the things that he does. Sure. Let me ask you, you deleted your Twitter. Why? Um, you know, I, the 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 main reason I deleted it, you know, it's kind of things like this. It's like all the noise, yeah. all the um, it's always the idiots that are the loudest on there, right? And mm-hmm. so, um, at that point after the election, um, when I was trying to get back to really tackling things and 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 really trying to focus on problems. And, you know, and, and it kind of goes back to Eric. Eric and some of his friends would create, like, fake accounts that were acting like me that would, you know, say I, I was doing awful things and all this stuff. And at the end of the day, that's when I really realized, too, I was struggling with depression. For the first time ever, it was, it was something that became really clear and obvious to me that I, I wasn't mentally well. And, um, and the, the election just drained me, you know, how much I put into it. And how much stress it, it um, and 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 friction it caused in my personal life because yeah. of the amount of sacrifice my whole family had to make. Yeah, I just got to the point and I and I said, you know, this isn't healthy for me. Be, being on this platform, there's so many great things to it. I mean, it's how you and I met. There's so, there's yeah. so many good things I can say came out of it. And but it's just that like five percent of awful people and I the know. vitriol that they spit all over the place. That for someone like me that struggles with, with, with mental health, I just didn't need it in my life anymore. I completely understand that. And I've thought about doing it myself many, many times. I've had death threats. I've had death threats against my children for having a football opinion, which is just totally absurd. And uh, yeah. people go way, way, way too far. You said something that was quite interesting, though. You said you suffered from depression for the first time that was clear and obvious. Did you suffer from it before and you were in denial? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think that the game um, for me was just a, a, a very cathartic experience. It was very grounding for me. So having a routine, having practice, having having people that I was accountable to, having responsibility, and then having joy. You know, every yeah. time I stepped on the field, it was just joy. It, and so I think that um, you know, I I in a way can trace depression back to my youth and having traumatic. Um, you know, tough experiences when I was young. And I think I would just disappear and get lost into mm-hmm. playing and would sit in the basement by myself for hours and hit the ball against the wall. And so I, I think I created a lot of um, ways to release anxiety, a lot of defense mechanisms. And so football became a real escape for me. And when I had the career ending injury at 28, um, you know, my, th- this dream I fought so hard for was just taken away, you know, overnight. And, um, that's when like the real signs of it, you know, like drinking too yeah. much and, um, you know, not wanting to get out of bed and feeling like I was in a windowless room at times mm-hmm. just with no way to get out. Like all that stuff, 
um, I was self-medicating to try to get through, yeah. but like the, the more I couldn't find a healthy relationship with the game again, the, the more sick I got mentally. And so I think I was able to just keep it at bay for a really, really long time. And, and I just think eventually I fatigued and, you know, fortunately had a, a wonderful person in my life, my ex-wife, Eva, who was there for me and helped me find, um, you know, a, a, a system of support and eventually a therapist that could not tell me or diagnose what I was going through, but help, help lead me through a door to, to mental health, which was first come, you know, coming to the clear understanding of, I struggle with something that, um, a few people in my family struggle with, and it's been there all along. And sometimes it's not there. And sometimes I don't notice it. And sometimes I do, and I'll live with it for the rest of my life. Kyle, there's so many things that you said on there that obviously I recognize myself. I commend you immensely for having the courage to talk about this because we need to normalize these conversations. This illness is as normal as any other illness and we need to treat it like that and we need to treat it with empathy rather than seeing it as a sign of weakness. And the coping mechanisms of of, of self-medicating, again, I, I, I recognize that and I'm... Before I recognized my own depression, I was very cynical towards addiction and everything else because I just thought it was a weakness. And then I realized that most people who are addicted are self-medicating emotional pain that they haven't resolved in their life, whether it stems from their youth or whatever it is. You have a very public life. Your ex-wife, of course, I, I don't want to talk about your, a lot about that, but obviously very famous mother-in-law and all this. Has that been difficult for you having that type of scrutiny on your life knowing that you're married into a very famous family yeah i mean i think not 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 ha having everything judged and having everything um you know for, for for the view of the public i mean listen you know i i'm not one to sit here and say you know feel sorry for me i, I made a choice not only in going into a career where i was going to be a public figure but but marrying into a, a um a famous family um, but you know, even, even the most famous people in the world deserve our compassion and Absolutely. sympathy for how difficult it is to not be able to struggle privately and to have people, mm -hmm. um, constantly judge you or uh, expect something of you because they feel they know you. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it, it was, it was another thing to navigate and negotiate that was really tough for my mental health. Um, you know, I think honestly, um, in a, in a weird way, it was um, my insecurity and, and my my attempt to try to to try to you know shine it on and make myself look normal or live up to expectations. Yeah, that was the unhealthy thing. It was the scariest thing I've done, I think, in my life. But when I decided to use my Twitter account to to tell people I was struggling with depression, so I can't tell you the incredible relief I felt yeah. after that. You know, you know. When, when you finally just stop trying to be perfect or stop yeah. trying to be what people expect you to be or stop pretending that everything's going okay. You know, the, I've never felt more human than when I put my hands up and said, I'm struggling with this thing and um, I can't get through it alone. And so I'm going to take a break and go get help. And, and to see how many people in my life, whether it was people I've never met through Twitter's, you know, giving me great messages or sharing stories, but the, the crazy thing and, and, you know, this is true of you and I is like, I had friends I didn't know were yeah. struggling with it, you yeah. know, very close friends that yeah. picked up the phone and said, listen, you know, thank you so much, because I didn't really know how to talk about it. And so I'm not pretending to be courageous at all. I mean, I, you know, in many ways, I, I'm such a scared, you know, insecure person, but 
I basically said to myself, I, I wish that when I was a player growing up, I had a player I looked up to that, and it was harder to do this at that time. Obviously the world's changed, but yeah. would have said, Hey, I struggle with anxiety or depression or these things and let me know it's okay. And that doesn't mm -hmm. make you weak. What makes you strong is just admitting like, of, of course that's going to be something that's a struggle and you'll need help to get through it. Like I, I was just hoping if that reaches one person, it's just going to make me feel better. But it also took the burden of hiding that away and, and it just gave me so much relief. Sometimes when you're a public figure, people have a perception of you, of what you should be. Uh, and when you come out with this stuff, it humanizes you to, for people to realize, I'm a human being. I'm not perfect. I'm flawed like everybody else. Uh, and, and lots of people can relate to that, being scared, insecure. We all have that. Nobody's immune to that. I also do a lot of work in boxing. I speak to a lot of fighters. And you'd be surprised how many fighters struggle with this as well. Depression, uh, of course, all the same symptoms that we don't expect of them because we expect them to be macho. So was there a trigger moment for you where you said, this is it, I have to get help. You're obviously a father, I am too. Was there a moment where you said, this is rock bottom, I have to get help? Yeah, yeah, there was a, um, there was a moment with, um, and there was, you know, there was kind of a few moments where, if I was being honest with myself, it was it was a little bit of a, a cry for help or saying like this is just too hard to tackle alone. Yeah. Um, but you know there was there was one time with um, with my ex wife where I just drank way too much and and you know obviously someone that suffers with depression alcohol is not the best thing in your life mm -hmm. um, and, and does not mix well with that and just just hit a real dark place and just. Um, you know, really, really struggled at that point to break out of it. I, I think the the thing with like the, per, the hard wiring of being a professional athlete was you found you found you could you could recover quickly, right? Like right. next play, like miss a penalty, like whatever. I got to move on. So right. like the hard wiring to convince myself everything was okay just kept kept bailing me out and kept getting me through to the next checkpoint. I think finally I just couldn't I just couldn't BS it anymore, yeah. and it was just clear you know, it has to be clear to you, you know, it's, it's clear to other people before it's clear to you. And so it was clear to me in that point that I wasn't showing enough love and, and compassion for myself. And it was because of depression. It wasn't because of anything else. Yeah, I completely understand that. Uh, where one of the hard parts that I've experienced with my own depression, and this is going to be extremely difficult, I'm sure for you being on TV is retaining enthusiasm to do your job. It's very difficult to get up and feel love and passion for something when you're not mentally present. How did you get through that? What, did you experience that? Was that something where you got up and said, I've got to go into work today and pretend I actually care about what I'm actually watching whenever I'm not mentally present? Was that, what, what, did, you go, did you experience that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I definitely would experience that every morning, you know, mm -hmm. like waking up. Uh, morning was always the hardest for me where it was just hard to get the motivation to yeah. kind of keep keep going and get up or do it. Everything just seemed mundane and pointless. And so, um, th but the thing is, um, my job would, would snap me out of it. You know, I, you know, people give us compliments and say they love the coverage and all that. And it feels great. And, and, and obviously, it's, it, as you know, it's a hard job yep. to do and it's it's. It's a, a, a gift and an honor to be able to do it. But one of the reasons that we're good at it, one of the reasons I love it, and one of the reasons it's one of my pillars of strength in my life are, are Rebecca and the Robbies are our close family. I mean, they, yeah. they are very important people to me. And so, um, 
you know, one day in, in the makeup room, and so the makeup room every morning is like our church, right? It's like mm-hmm. when we come in and we all sit there and we tell stories, we, 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 we share everything, we shed things, we, we ask for advice. I mean, it really is an important part of our life that, you know, right now we're missing, which is tough. Sure. And, and one day, to be honest, um, Rebecca looked over at me and said, I'm worried about you. And I broke mm. down and started crying. You know, I, I thought I thought I was putting on a pretty good act for them. Aye. But they just knew me too well. And, um, you know, the, the, the company at that point came forward and were so supportive. Because um, at that point, I was I was really keeping it from the company. And they were so supportive of... Um, you know, of finding a, a, a way to have me working or giving me a break or just making sure that, that I knew I had the support system of, of the NBC family to always stay mentally well and always have a mental health outlet. It's brilliant. Uh, it's funny you say it. Whenever someone says that to you and they recognize the pain in your eyes, it's, I, I've been in that situation. Oh, it's broke it down. I've, I'm trying to keep it together myself when you said it because it's triggering for myself. You are a father. I'm a father. Being a father for me, you know, when, when I looked at the reasons to carry on, the reasons to keep fighting, the reasons not to give in to this illness, and one of the only moments of brightness, if you want to call it that, in my life were my children. They were one of the few things that could take me away from that dark place. How important, you've got three gorgeous children, how important has it been for you to have these kids? Yeah, I mean, they're everything. Um, it's such a, for those that don't have kids, you know, it's hard to explain the sensation of loving something more than you love yourself. Okay. You know, um, it, it's really, you know, what what's tough for me is because they're so important to me and because my mental health now doesn't only affect me but affects them, I, I do sometimes get really worried and overwhelmed with what I'm modeling for them yeah. because you know now there are these incredible kids that a my paranoia and my fear is that maybe some of the things I struggle with they'll struggle with down the line yeah. but um, you know the best thing I can do and I what always kind of makes me feel good and is a pillar of strength is to say whether they do or don't they need to see a father um, actively modeling what it is to stay mentally healthy and so. Yeah, I mean they they are great. They are a great part of my life in that um obviously I I love them so dearly, but every day they're kind of a snap out of it reminder if I'm, you know, going through a funk. Well, it's interesting you said something when you were young and you would have issues, you would kick a ball against the wall, you would say it was a different word back then. So you have to have different conversations with your kids that you didn't that your mom and dad didn't have with you not through a lack of love just because it was a different time. So it is important that I, you know, I have a 13 year old. I have conversations with him. He struggles with losing his mom, of course. And we talk, we're open about this, about how to healthily deal with emotions so that he doesn't have self destructive behavior and dealing with them. So uh, that's very, very important to me. And I'm sure you're also having those conversations with your child. Obviously, Kyle, the third one, you're, unfortunately, your life has been quite public. You, uh, you did get divorced. How difficult has it been having a child where you are not in present in the home every day and you're separated? I mean, it's it's I, it, you know I I can't tell you, and some people know this, uh, um, how hard it is to not wake up in the same house that your kids are in. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know some some experience that through their job, some experience that for many reasons, but. You know, it's really tough to um, to have that distance. 
I will say, and, and a lot of people just either don't want to understand this or can't understand this, but th- the decision that Evan and I made um, was one through um, out of love for each other, and it was a incredibly um, positive transition that we decided, and we we went to therapy and couples therapy for years. I mean, we we've been working on our marriage for a long time, and it was in that moment that we decided. Um, tethering success to staying married is a mistake for us and thinking we're doing that for the kids is also a mistake. Um, so we, we, we realized, and I'm, I'm really grateful to Eva because she was the one that really stepped forward to say, we, we can do this. Like we can, we're going to be in each other's lives for the rest of our life and we can make this a positive transition and co-parent these kids and model what a marriage should be, but be what their parents can be when they're happy. And so as hard as it is to spend less time with my kids, at the time that I'm spending with them, they're seeing the actual happy me that is modeling for them what I'm, I'm like when I'm not desperately trying to make a marriage that's failing work. Are you at a happy place in your life right now, Ken? I'm in the happiest place I've been in in a long time. But I mean, here's the thing is, is, you know, struggling with anything, um, whether it be depression, whether it be anxiety, whether it be just the normal challenges of keeping a job, of, of raising kids, of, of being a good partner, of being a good brother, being a good son, all of these challenges make life hard. Right now, um, what ends up kind of becoming the, the counter to the positive place I'm in right now is how challenging this environment is for everyone. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, in a great place in that I know what my weaknesses are. I know what my issues are. I know what I'm struggling with. I, I'm honest with myself. I don't try to convince myself of things anymore. But, um, you know, being in this environment and watching the negative effect it's having on friends and family and children and, you know, creating all sorts of anxiety and, and confusion and fear, it's just a tough place to be in for everyone. But I think, um, ultimately you know the the pendulum swings and i think out of this you know a lot of bonds will be stronger if we're if we're able to to communicate how we're really feeling through all of this yeah i completely agree uh a couple of questions left what do you like to do outside of football that brings you peace that uh you love to spend your personal time doing i mean little things like playing the guitar um or um or right now doing doing projects i love to get lost in in kind of creative engineering type projects you know building the the goal system for over under initiative was so much fun to be lost in the detail Mm -hmm. of that and i'm in my new place in brooklyn right now i'm getting ready to put a third coat of white paint on a hardwood (laughs) floor and uh and fix fix a few fixtures i mean some of that stuff where my mind can be occupied on process again is very cathartic for me um but philanthropy, I mean, the, the foundation over under initiative has become a really amazing beacon for me to always keep me pointing in the positive direction. What, t- what type of music do you like? I mean, I can listen to absolutely anything, but I would say if, if, if you went through and there was an algorithm that trends towards what I listen to the most, I would say it's probably like in the classic rock kind of era. What's your that's, favorite that's, movie? You know, uh... It's it's a it's a tie between the Big Lebowski and Braveheart. <laughs> Big Lebowski is amazing. Which could be, could be different. 
couldn't be more different. It's just like your opinion. <laughs> it's one of the funniest <laughs> movies I've ever seen. If you could give advice to your younger self, you acquire knowledge as you grow older. And one of the things that I love to do is talk to people who are a lot older than me about life advice, the things that I take too seriously. If you could give advice to your younger self, what would you tell yourself? Um, I, I would say don't don't be scared to show people um, who you are and what you're going through. You know, I, I think my I, I put on a real armor when I was young, and I think I could confuse um, what's happened in my life and say that success came through that really driven um, kind kind of you know uh, um, sheltered and closed off person I became and. Um, I, you know, that, that's just not true. I, I, I was still going to make it to the, the professional game. That was still going to be my drive. That was still going to be, uh, my ambition. But, um, if I could go back, I'd say, you know, don't, don't be scared to let people see who you are. Last question. Um, we, we covered this a little bit, but you're about, uh, your, your love of obviously your country and, and football in this country. And uh, we all want to see the U.S. do well. We all want to see the league grow and continue to grow. Are you optimistic about the, fo- the future of football in the United States? Well, I mean, inertia, right? This is the greatest game on the planet. Inertia drags this game forward. And, and whether um, the powers that be uh, make good decisions or bad decisions, it, it just it changes the trajectory, not not the, the direction. So um, I'm optimistic that we will see our men win a World Cup in, in our lifetime. I'm optimistic our women will be treated as our men are. I'm optimistic our league our leagues will be celebrated as some of the best leagues in the world. I believe we'll have an open system at some point. I, all of these you know things that will. Um, that are that are demonstrative of a healthy and growing soccer culture. I believe in all of those things in, in the near future. I couldn't echo your sentiments more. I've got two girls, and I sincerely hope there is parity between men and the women, and the girls can live out their dreams in the same way the boys can, and uh, they're, they're treated fairly and treated equally. Kel, you are one of the classiest human beings I've had the pleasure to meet and get to know. You always have time. You never say no. You're a gentleman. You're exceptional on TV, you're great at what you do, and you're a tremendous human being. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm eternally grateful, and hopefully I catch up with you again soon, and I wish you all the best in your new place and your new place in life. Thank you so much, man. All right, Phil, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. Kind words, and always a pleasure to talk to you, my man. Cheers, brother. Take care. Bye-bye.